0: It's about service for for working psalms, right? I'm going to a restaurant with a famous sommelier because I want them to recommend the wine on the list they created. And I want to have that conversation with them because at the end of the day, they didn't make the wine.
1: Forged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. As always, I'm your host, Zach Jabal, and joining me on today's show is Adam Teeter. He's the CEO of VinePair, which is one of the top websites for drinks news and discussion. We'll talk about the site and Adam's recent piece about the future of the sommelier in just a minute. But first, a thought. Sorry for the navel-gazing, but what exactly is a sommelier? That's a question that's been ricocheting around the wine world lately, and unsurprisingly, there have been a few different opinions. Some hold that anyone who sells wine professionally can claim the title, especially if they've worked on the floor of a restaurant, while others hold to a stricter definition. I thought I'd share my take, briefly. There are many ways to be a wine expert, and almost as many ways to be a wine professional. Several different examining bodies offer certifications and accreditations, which might even include the word sommelier in them. Yet I'm of the belief that if you refer to yourself as a sommelier, you should be working in a restaurant, serving and selling wine to guests. That doesn't mean you have to relinquish your pins and diplomas if you leave the floor, but calling yourself a sommelier is ever so slightly disrespectful to those of us who are actually doing the job. As I discussed with today's guest, the trajectory and future for sommeliers is in some ways murkier than ever, and I fully expect there to be a veritable legion of ex-soms throughout the wine world in time. Heck, I might even be among them. If so, I'll always be proud of what I've done, but I'll leave the job title for those still actually doing the job. Joining me today on Disgorge is Adam Teeter he's the CEO of vine pair Adam thanks so much for your time
0: thanks for having me
1: so let's start with uh, with an easy and hard question all at once how did you get interested in wine in the first place ah uh, so
0: I had just graduated college and um, I was moving to New York and um, I was I was just getting really interested in everything about wine um, and understanding sort of why I was obsessed with the things I was obsessed with. So, I mean, I was drinking really cheap stuff. I mean, let's be clear, but I, I still really enjoyed it. And I hated having this feeling of like going to a restaurant and being really intimidated. So I was like, Oh my God, I got to learn as much as I can about wine. Um, And the way that I decided to do that was with a group of friends, we started a wine club. And we would get together once a month and there'd be a theme. So one month it would be, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon from Washington state. Another month it would be, um, you know, not Burgundy, but, you know, not <laughs> afford Burgundy. Um, and, you know, everyone would have to do research on the bottle they brought. We would open all the bottles and then we would taste them all and everyone would, you know, chat and teach. And then we'd vote on our favorite and, the the person who brought, you know, the majority of the group's favorite was almost like a book club would get to choose the wine theme for the next month. Mm. And it was just awesome. I mean, it, it really broke down wine. It made everyone sort of feel really comfortable. And it was also really fun to see that there was so many people in my friend group and social group that were also like really interested in this stuff and felt just very confused and when they would go to read books, they couldn't ever find one that like really taught them things. You know, we would kind of use Wikipedia um, and it never really, you know, felt accessible. So we were creating this accessibility just as a group of friends, right? Cause everyone would bring like a nugget and, you know, 20 nuggets together created enough to feel confident in saying, okay, I think I understand, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley. And what I understand, first of all, is that the, the bottles we're bringing for $20 aren't very good. <laughs> what I also yeah. understand is that, you know, if I want to spend more, I I really have to be prepared to do that. And I I think that that was really what got me into it. And at that point, you know, I was 22, 23. um, And I'd really come to wine from someone who, in college, I really drank a lot of beer. I mean, the craft beer boom was really taking off when I was in college. So um, I went to college in Atlanta, and Sweetwater was at that point, you know, growing. And so, they sort of were the first people to say, Oh, there's like there's better stuff out here mm-hmm. than the cheap beer you're drinking, you know, in your dorm room. And I and then I sort of took that transition to wine, but wine I just felt harder. Like I still I still love craft beer and we write, you know, a third of our content on Vinepair is craft beer focused. Um, but wine for sure is like my obsession. Um, and that's really where we came to starting Vinepair from in the first place. So, you know, from my wine club days, I got really involved in Sort of trying to have a ve- host events and things like that that broke down the, um, the barriers of wine. So I-, I got really connected with this guy that became a very good friend, then Keith Beavers, who um, basically taught me everything I know about wine. He owned at the time an Italian wine bar in the East Village, and he owned a wine shop um, in Alphabet City. And we would get together and drink and talk about ideas. And we launched a music uh, series together called Vivo and Vino because mm-hmm. my day job at the time was I was, I was working in uh, the music business. I was at a record label. Uh, so I knew a bunch of agents and things like that um, in the business. So I knew of bands that would be playing New York and, you know, they'd be playing Bowery ballroom or Webster hall, but they'd have a night off and I'd, I'd chat with their agents and say, Hey, like what they want to play like an organic, you know, an, an acoustic set, um, we'll, we'll host an dinner first at this restaurant, they'll play an acoustic set, we'll partner with them with a winemaker, and we'll have a sort of like salon conversation about um, influences for the winemaker and influences for the band and how they're interconnected and things like that. And it was really amazing and, and super fun. Uh, we did it for two years. And that, again, got me really excited about sort of making wine more accessible because I had, you know, my audience was people who were really into the band, right? And then they got to hear from this winemaker and they're like, oh wow, this person's super cool too. And oh, there's so much more behind this product than I thought there was. Um and you know, they got to they would do tasting. So you would get to taste four of the winemakers um bottles. Mm-hmm. And so people just sort of left me, like, wow, like I want to buy more, you know, bouton noir or um, you know, more Brooklyn analogy. And so that was just something that made me realize, like, okay, there is this market out there of people who connect with this product as part of their lifestyle, but they're not a collector. So Um, a few years later I was just like chatting about I always wanted to start a business Um, I've always been very entrepreneurial and I have a journalism background uh, and I was talking to a really good friend from college and I was saying hey I think that there's an opportunity in the alcohol space there doesn't really seem to be any publications that are lifestyle focused for the next generation of consumer um, you know would you want to see if we could start one and like what that would look like? And he said, sure. So that's how vine pair started. It started, you know, in 2014, um, with just he and I, he quit his job just to, to work on it. I was still working, um, part-time at mine and then, you know, part-time on vine pair. And I quit, you know, six months later. And since then we've, we've grown vine pair to be the largest site about alcohol in the country. So, um, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. We, we, you know, we have a little over uh, two million readers a month um, just to the site alone. And uh, we, we say if you're to play circulation games that I think a lot of publications play, like if you looked at all of our social channels, et cetera, we reach almost 19 million people every mm-hmm. month. Um, and it's and it's an audience that is, you know, has always been there, but I think has, has never been served. Um, you know, when we look at our reader and we compare them to readers of other publications, you know, our reader isn't someone who collects, right? They're not someone that's trying to build a cellar or that's, you know, thinking about the value of this wine 10 years down the road. They're a reader that really is interested in like, what's the cool restaurant that has the great wine list where I'm going to have an awesome experience. Mm -hmm. Where's the, amazing wine region where I'm going to get to actually like meet the winemaker and feel like a VIP and not just, you know, in this massive winery where I'm paying $30 to taste and like, you know, the person behind the counter doesn't know about the wine they're pouring. Right. That's, that's where these people are, are, are coming to us from Mm -hmm. and they're really excited about these products. And, you know, I think a lot of that is related to what else we're seeing happen in the world of just consumer behavior, right? People, want unique stories they want artisanal they want you know things that make them feel good and i think in a lot of ways wine craft beer and cocktails really all fit into these lifestyle choices that that people are making that that my generation is making um and so i think that's where you know vine pear really sits in and we We try very hard. We've tried very hard to create a publication that we want to read. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our goals are really creating a publication that has great journalism, right? So, we do a lot of long form. Um, We try to do at least one heavy hitting piece a day. We 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 care about accessible pieces, so we try to do a lot of explainers and things that really break down questions that people have, Um, and then we also understanding who the who the market is we we do content that we think is really fun you know things that are more lighthearted, right like the 17 wines to pair with potato chips mm-hmm. things like that right that just sort of say hey guys like it's not all serious right it's not at the end of the day i mean i believe personally that people drink alcohol they drink wine for two reasons because it tastes good and because they like the effects
2: of mm-hmm. what happens
0: when you drink these these products right if if we didn't have alcohol in cocktails or wine, be, there'd be a lot less people that drink them. And, we, and I think we all have to be honest about that. Um, I think that sometimes what happens in this world of wine, and um, you know, now it's happening to craft beer, which I think is really unfortunate, and it's happening in cocktails too, is that we try to convince ourselves that the only reason people are drinking these things is because of the taste. Mm-hmm. And so we we go overboard about you know the the, the tasting notes and the terroir and the And yes, that is a huge part for a lot of people, including me. But we also drink it because for centuries we've drank it because we like what alcohol does to our brains. We like how it makes us feel. We like how it makes us, you know, more confident in conversations and more sociable. And those are things we talk about in terms of the experiences that go along with these products, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is really important. and, And that's always been sort of our editorial focus is how do we access the world through these products, which is, you know, why in the long form, especially we try to tell larger stories that connect more to business and politics and culture and just, okay, here's a story about like this winemaker and, his or her vineyard and their soil right like what actually is what is it that they're doing that speaks to a broader you know socioeconomic issue or that you know reflects on what's happening in their country or their region and and, yeah and and that's basically you know what we've always tried to do since we started
1: yeah well it seems like you know maybe a, a lesser but important third part of that is is that people i think also get interested in or or involved with or um, passionate about craft beer or wine or uh, cocktails um, because they are... um are a way to explore the world around us. You know, they're, they're maybe that's not a thing for every single person who's picking up a bottle on their you know on their way home at uh, in, in night. But they but they are a way to kind of, especially with wine, I think, um, to to sort of travel to engage with another culture, especially if you're dealing with you know uh, for uh, international wine or whatever. And that and I think that is a, a tremendously important uh, part of it too. Is that that ability to kind of reach outside of our own our own community and in some way at least access another one.
0: Yeah, I don't think you could be more on point.
1: <laughs> I mean, I Thank think you.
0: <laughs> that, that is completely true. I mean, that's why, you know, I was it's funny, I was talking to um someone yesterday uh, from Italy and we were just talking about the state of Italian wine and things like that and uh one of the points that I made is you know, I asked her, um the person I was meeting with was Stevie Kim, who's the head of in Italy. Oh, and I just yeah. asked her, Have you seen Master of None? And she said, No, I haven't seen Master of None. I said, Man, if you were smart, if you were an Italian winemaker, you would be all over Master of None right now mm-hmm. because that television show is people are obsessed with and he is obsessed with Italian culture and making the food and people think that they're they're gonna have his same experiences just by drinking the wine and eating the food he's eating. Mm-hmm. you know and that is that is what wine has always been that's what these that's why people are so rabid about getting a craft beer that you can only get in vermont because you you think you're having the same experience that people in those places are having and you're completely right it is an accessible way to experience the world around you without having to spend the thousands of dollars that it costs to travel
2: mm-hmm.
0: and yeah i think that sometimes we, we miss that when we we start focusing so much on you know as i said earlier just like how much is this going to be worth and will this age well and what score did it get and you know all of these things that i understand are important to a very specific group of um, consumers but in all honesty have really dominated the wine conversation
1: in this country for far too long Mm -hmm. well i find it interesting because i think also there's there's a to me at least sort of a natural or potentially natural um sort of transition and evolution of of wine drinking where, you know, yeah, when I started getting interested in wine, very similarly to you when I was in my early 20s and, you know, all that, I, you know, mostly would buy whatever I could kind of get my hands on that I could afford and would try and I was working in restaurants so I had some more exposure and, um, you know, eventually got to the point where I was thinking, well, you know, maybe I'm going to try buying some of these wines with the, with the intention of hanging on to them for a period of time, but that was never... That wasn't where I started, and, and it would have been very alien to me to be talked to about a wine only in terms of like, well, drink this in 10 years. You know, I was 23. I'm like, I don't want to wait 10 minutes to drink this yeah. wine, let alone 10 <laughs> years, I just so I think it's really interesting to me because I do get the sense that, you know, people of our generation are, you know, I I get more questions from people around me, from uh, friends and people in my peer group now about like, well, you know, if I were going to start collecting wine, what would I do? And, you know, I think it is a it is a thing, too, that just as a generation ages, it becomes a little more, you know, making we all we start making long term plans in a lot of ways. We buy houses. We you know some of us get married, have kids, et cetera. You know, those are all things that have a long (laughs) <laughs> a long time scale attached to them and, and wine fortunately can be that kind of thing. Uh, but I agree that the, that there's a, there's been an undue focus on it. And I find it hilarious when I go taste wines and, and a winery is telling me that their you know, $15 bottle of wine will age for 15 years. I'm like, no, it won't. Yeah. Like for one, it won't taste good in 15 <laughs> years, but also no bottle, none of that will make it to 15 years. Like no one's buying this to age. It. Yeah.
0: No, they're buying it. Cause it's, it's great now. And I think, yeah, I mean, look, I have a wine fridge in my apartment. I'm definitely holding some bottles that, you know, I know are going to be better in five or 10 years than they are now. Um, and I think that a lot of people in my like peer group are also starting to do that. Um, but, you know, I think I'm, I'm doing it less based on what someone else said about the wine and more based on like the, Oh, I was at this winery and, you know, this was their, their top bottle. And it blew me away when I had it two years ago. And I want to go back to that place in five or six years from now. And I know it's going to taste even better. Um, and I think you're seeing that happen more and more as well, where, where that's sort of how people are choosing to buy or like, you know, I got really into Rioja. So I'm going to buy a bunch of that. Um, but I, the, the whole world I think is just changing and that we're, we're growing up in our wine culture in the United States. I think people are becoming more confident about what they like and what they don't like. And they're, they're more experimental and they're willing to try a lot of different things. Um, And I I think that just is is the nature of, you know, wine evolving in the United States, right? Like even when my parents were drinking wine, it was very different, right? There was even, even less access to things and even more, you know, priority put on stuff that came out of a few specific regions. Um and now we're saying no 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 like th- there's great stuff everywhere and depending on your price point what you're going to pay if you're willing to experiment you can find great stuff at a- at any level.
1: Yeah, and it it, pre- it does kind of create this interesting um dynamic whereby if you're interested in in wine and you're interested in exploring it um, You can go in so many more directions um, than even – I mean, not even – let alone – I mean, certainly true with our parents' generation, but even 10 years ago, um, the amount of things that are – that are available in, um, you know, certainly in New York City, but in Seattle where I live and in other cities around the country where I travel, um, you know, you set, you go find stuff on shelves that would have been, you know, just unthinkable a decade ago, pretty much anywhere in the U.S., um, or besides maybe a few specific markets. And, and that's not even to say anything about the kind of incredible diversity of wine that's being made domestically. Yeah, it's... I mean, it, this, is, this wasn't necessarily meant to be just, like, a yay wine podcast, but, like, it's a it's a really fun time to be into wine, I got to say.
0: It is. It is. Well I mean, I think you... you I guess, actually, you I ask, should rephrase. My talking- podcast
1: is always yay wine, let's be clear, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I...
0: I, I do. I think it's a very exciting time. I think for all three of these, you know, things that we write about, it's it's crazy exciting. I mean, the 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 explosion of beers and styles in this country is just unreal to me. And the, I mean, look, we're we're still at the pace where we're opening a brewery a day in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's just insane, you know. And in the same regard, all the stuff that's happening in the cocktail movement and with craft you know, liquors and even even the big guys, like the innovations that they're doing in terms of of spirits is just unbelievable. I think it's just a really cool time if you're interested in these products and then you also like, you know, entertaining and travel and, um, you know, making beer or or or, you know, cocktails. It's just, it's a cool time right now, for sure.
1: Yeah. And so I'm actually curious as uh as this has continued to grow and as, you know, vine pear has continued to grow, um, have how has it been challenging to to maintain what you, I guess you sort of talk about as sort of a, a, a equal balance between those three, um, well, they're not like different subjects, but, you know, three kind of avenues of the, I guess, of the drinking process. Um, world do, do you get similar traction for all three or do you find yourself that like man we write a post about craft beer and that gets you know way more attention than the thing about craft acavite i mean obviously that's kind of an, an apples to oranges com- comparison but you know do you do, do, is it hard to maintain that balance or does it happen kind of organically
0: so the balance happens organically for sure um you know we have writers on staff and freelancers we work with who just like they have their specific things right and so there's Areas that they are more passionate about than others, unless you're what we would say is like a a straight up reporter, right? So I sort of I fit more of the straight up reporter role. That's my background. So um, I can sort of go between. But some of our writers, right, like Jesse Farrar, who writes a beer column for us once a week, like that's what Jesse writes about. You know, he knows beer and he loves beer and he has a specific voice that the readers who like to read his column look for. Um, I would never turn around and ask Jesse to write about a winemaker in like the central coast of California because that's just not his beat. But, you know, other people do sort of write everything for us. However, like you're completely right. We do see, you know, we do see specific outliers in every area that we write about, right? Like a story about IPA is going to do better than a story about craft Aquavit or a story about bourbon is going to destroy a story about um Hungarian wine right because mm-hmm. there are just still you know there are, there are areas of all three of these products that are just more popular and more pervasive in culture to begin with so they just naturally have audiences that the other things take a lot more time to find you know like natural wine while it's i think is super cool and if you talk to people in new york they you, they think it's everywhere like you know, our readers are national and there's a huge portion of them that's like, what is that?
1: Mm. And (laughs) to be fair, there's a lot of us, there's a lot of us in the industry who are like, what is that exactly? But that's another (laughs) conversation.
0: That's true. So, you know, I mean, so if I were to do a story on natural wine, it's just not going to be as, as huge. I mean, a perfect example is we we published a long form piece uh, last week um, by one of our writers, Nick Hines, and it was all about what's happening in mexico now because of mezcal mm-hmm. and how the industry is completely changing and what it now means that some big money is coming in right like probably the most highly respected brand was just bought by perno ricard mm-hmm. so like what is what's that going to now do to an industry that was all about craft and authenticity when you know you now have like the legitimate money of major corporations involved and you know it did well it was very successful among, you know, people who are, you know, nerds in the spirit space. Mm-hmm. But among the, you know, the majority readership of our site, like, you know, I, I don't think it was, it was as heavily read as some of the other stories we published that day. And that's just because, you know, Mezcal, as much as the industry thinks is really this you know, product that everybody knows about, it's still very much under the radar of most drinkers. I mean, if you ask most drinkers, what spirit comes out, what spirits come out of Mexico, they'd say tequila. And if you said, oh, there's another one that's probably like, what's that? Yeah,
1: they say rum. So, you know,
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, as best we can, we try to have this, you know,
1: third, third, third in terms of coverage. But
0: obviously, like also during certain times of the year, something is just going to take precedence, right? Mm-hmm. Like this time of the year, there's probably going to be a little bit more rosé because yep. that's just what everybody's drinking. Um, you know, around the holidays, there's probably going to be a little bit more sparkling wine. But, you know, beer in the, in the fall because of, you know, what's happening with – You know football season and things like that and that's just what people think about so um
1: that sort of plays a little bit into it
0: too but but we try as best we can
1: (laughs) yeah speaking of um some of the things that you guys cover um you know just recently wrote a piece about um sort of the future potentially of celebrity sommeliers and sort of the the differences i guess you could say between uh the career options and and paths for um famous sommeliers and maybe by proxy just sort of people who've gotten to a certain level of accomplishment in that field versus celebrity chefs or really accomplished chefs. So why are why are those two uh, career tracks different?
0: So, I mean, I think it's a really interesting uh, issue. And it, it actually, to be honest with you, wasn't what I was thinking about when I thought about writing this piece in the first place. Uh, when I first came to the piece, it was literally... Hey, I know Dustin Wilson. I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to sort of pick his brain about, you know, wine retail because it was his new thing. And I didn't know that the hypothesis I wound up coming up with was going to come out until our, you know, after our conversations when I realized, Oh man, like this is something that is definitely happening in this industry. And I think the differences are when you're a celebrity chef and I talk about it a little bit in the article, um, you have the ability to open, a uh, ton of restaurants and simply consult on the menu and the customer feels like they're eating your food. Right. So Mario Batali is a perfect example. If you ask any customers who've seen him on TV, who are you know eating at one of his Italy restaurants or at his places in Vegas or LA or New York, they think they're at a Batali restaurant. He is not in the kitchen. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> like, he probably hasn't been in the kitchen in months. You know, he's, we're actually, our offices are pretty close to his offices, and we use his studio sometimes to shoot video um, when we really want something nice because we have a great relationship with his team. He's at his office. Yeah, <laughs> you know, He's working on his, his website, on all of his brands. I mean, But he did develop the menu at all of these places. It's very different, I think, for a sommelier. But at the end of the day, it's about service for for working Psalms, right? I'm going to a restaurant at, with a famous sommelier because I want them to recommend the wine on the list they created. Mm-hmm. And I want to have that conversation with them. Because at the end of the day, they didn't make the wine, right? They're, they're selecting the wine that I should drink that night with what I want to eat and with what I'm in the mood for. So it's a lot harder to say, oh, you know, here is Dustin Wilson's five restaurants and the wine list he curates, but he's not there to have the conversation with you, and he's not there to help you choose the wine based on your mood or what you've ordered, but he he did organize the list. It's, that's, I think, a much harder sell mm-hmm. for a consumer, right? Because like, I want to talk to Dustin. So I, I think that at that point in time, if you are someone with this celebrity status, you... Even even though Dustin would tell you he doesn't want to be thought of as having celebrity status, um, you run out of options in mm-hmm. the in the traditional service world. And then just on top of that, the quality of life stinks. Uh-huh. You know, you talk to any, any thumb, and it just is an awful quality of life. And look, there are people I know that love it, and it's amazing that they they love it and, and they want to do it for the rest of their lives. And but I think you do make trade offs, and that's the same way. Like when Mario Batali is consulting on his 17 restaurants, he's not at any of them in two in the, until two in the morning. Unless he just wants to be, mm-hmm. you know, if he, if, if that's the kind of life he likes and he's entertaining some friends that he wants to hang out till two in the morning, he totally can. If you're a working Psalm, even if you're a celebrity Psalm, you're on the floor at 11 Madison park, like Dustin was, you are working till two in the morning
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that's your life. Uh, and I, I really, you know, that's not a life that I think a lot of people would expect You would have to have if you're someone who's a quote-unquote celebrity Um, and i think in the sommelier profession you still do and so that causes a lot of them you know to have to make serious choices about you know what they want to do in their lives and what goals they have and you know how they ultimately leverage this status that they've achieved you know partly through being in restaurants but partly just through also being right place right time right i think you know in dustin wilson's case He'd be the first to admit, like, he was on a great trajectory as a sommelier, right? I I, I have no doubt that Dustin could have become the beverage director at Eleven Madison Park without having been in this movie that took off. But the truth is that he was in this movie that became massively successful, especially you know among obsessives in in the wine world. And he did become a celebrity. Mm -hmm. And he is you know as long as that movie is available for free on Netflix he will continue to become re- be relevant for the people that watch that film and you know so he's going to have to figure out a way that he parlays that into more success for himself and and that's really what i think that the story wound up being
1: about yeah well and it's really interesting too i think you know one thing that i've learned in my time in the restaurant industry um, is that you know with chefs i mean it, it, i think it's not just necessarily what you talked about with being able to open a number of restaurants because I mean, I couldn't speak for Mario Batali or any specific chef, of course, but, you know, restaurants, even successful ones, have really pretty slim profit margins for the most part. But it's all the other stuff. It's the branding. It's the, you know, it's the cookbooks, the cookware, the, you know, the sauces, the partnerships with, you know, large other brands, you know, all that stuff is what in the end drives a lot of the success of the larger business. And it's just hard to envision a sommelier, even a famous one being able to really like, you know, they can go make wine, I guess, as some have done, and maybe that becomes successful. Um, they can, you know, as, as you mentioned in the piece, you know, there are several other, um, People from the – two of the other sommeliers from SOM have gotten involved in sort of online wine sales, and maybe that's, you know, maybe that's super successful. But in the end, yeah, I think it's just we're not as a culture there. – there isn't the same like – yeah, I think it's, it would be – it would seem very strange to, to go into a restaurant and be – or to choose to go to a restaurant because the wine list was – Curated by person X, you know. To me, if they're not in the space, if they're not working in that restaurant regularly, then it's kind of like, well, it's just a wine list. Like, you know, what makes this one any more special than the wine list down the street?
0: Yeah, I mean, and look, when I was writing the piece, uh, and yesterday reading some of the reactions to the piece, you know, one of the things I heard was, oh, well, you know, what about Bobby Stucky, and you know, he owns Frosca Food and Wine, and you know, isn't he still a foursome? And, you know my sort of response back to that to a lot of readers was no he's not he's a, he's a restaurant owner he chooses to be on the floor at frosca and that's amazing but he also what people don't realize is frosca has sister restaurants in Boulder that he also owns you know he he's doing he's found other ways to make money in the business but i i don't think at the end of the day if you just said hey i just want to be this sommelier attached to a great restaurant and work the floor that as a celebrity that would ever be as be fulfilling for you because it is just there's not a lot of ways to then parlay that into as you were saying other lucrative career options right maybe you could write maybe one book but again as we as people know who've been publishing like that's not a lucrative game (laughs) anymore you know it's the the advances aren't huge like you're expected to sell a lot of books my wife works in publishing so it's sort of like something that i'm very very well aware of Mm -hmm. you got to do a lot of the hustling yourself and you know So that's why you see so many bloggers and social media personalities getting book deals recently because the publisher knows they can, they have a a built in audience to sell the book. Mm -hmm. It's just a famous sommelier, but you maybe don't have a huge social following or whatever, maybe you're not going to sell a ton of books. Mm -hmm. So that's not something that's an option for you. Um, You know, you can only be in so many movies (laughs) So, yeah, then I think at that point you got to ask, like, what is it? And I, I do think there are a few options, right? I think the retail one that Dustin is pursuing is very interesting. Um, I don't think it's work it will work for everyone or would work everywhere. I think it is incredibly intelligent of him to put that store in Tribeca. Mm -hmm. where he, you know, it's New York City's most expensive neighborhood. He knows he can charge premium prices. You know, he, to his credit, he does have a a section of the shop that is under $20 bottles of wine, but then there's a lot of really expensive bottles there and that's paying his rent. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you can have success as a winemaker. I mean, a lot of people like to talk about Raj Parr, but like the person I think that's been most successful in the wine game is Andre Mm Mack. And the reason I say Andre Mack is because you know okay dude's super well known as a Somme, you know being one of the most prominent african american sommeliers is just you know already rose him quicker than a lot of other people um and then look his rose is in world markets mm-hmm. you know dude went mainstream and you know raj Parr is making awesome high-end wines that are in some of the top wine shops in the country but he's not in world market, nope. and Andre Mack is. Muton, <laughs> yeah. you know Mouton Noir is, and like that's where you make money. Yep. And so I think for, if you can get to that level, you're there. You know, Patrick Cappiello has the opportunity to do that now with this 40 ounce rose brand he's created. Right? It's a huge cultural mm-hmm. phenomenon. If he can produce enough of it fast enough, like he might be able to leave the floor and run this brand. You know. Um, Jordan Salcedo is trying to do it with her brand, Ramona. Like if you can do it as a SOM, if you're really about the brand, um, then I think that, that that's also lucrative in addition to retail. Or you can do, you know, what Dillon did and you can go be a, a, a very well-paid spokesperson, right? I mean, go say, cool, I'm going to go work for Treasury Wine Estates and I'm going to represent all their brands and, you know, you have to travel a lot and hustle, but you know, you can also have a, a very lucrative career that's again much better than being on the floor. Yeah. Um, Dustin argued when we spoke that I didn't put in the piece that you know some of the other jobs that he feels you can have more success with, or you know, you can become an importer. And if you become a really great importer, um, you know, you you can make more money than working the floor, even the top floor job, and have a, a better quality of life. Or you could even become a top salesman for one of the best, you know distributors in the country right you can go work for one of these big uh behemoths like southern wine and spirits or something
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you know represent one of their big portfolios and say hey Vic, these are wines that are being presented to you by x really well-known psalm mm-hmm. and you know make a ton of money too so in any of these in any of these cases it's crazy that like the place where you rise to prominence the easiest in the wine world is, is as a psalm but it's once you rise to that prominence it really isn't the place where you can cash in on it
1: yeah, well, I also wonder if there's like a a, a cultural difference, and I, I was thinking about this. Like, you know, when we talk about, say, chefs, and again to come back to Mario Batali, like people look at someone like that and they say, "Wow, that person's like they're an artist. They're they're creating this thing, this dish, this uh, menu, this concept." Uh, sort of out of nothing. And obviously, none of them are created out of nothing. They're created out of a lot of experience and tradition and um, you know, learning from other people. And sometimes it's literally appropriated from other restaurants that may or may not still exist. But you know, the guest doesn't necessarily know that. But the sommelier is, as you said, and I think is really important to delineate, is in the end a service position. As you said, for the most part, yep. the Psalm isn't making the wine. And what they're really doing is saying, uh, you know they're they're providing they're a they're a middleman they're the go between they're the person who is combining this creative and en- one creative endeavor of food and this other creative endeavor of wine and they may combine them creatively but it's really hard I think to sell the average person and it, in some ways to sell the average restaurateur and and to just sort of create this idea of the som as being an essential part of the dining experience and I think it's very easy to forget that you know for all the cultural space that sommeliers have come to occupy, they're still relatively few and far between in restaurants themselves in this country. You know, there are not a lot of restaurants in America that have a dedicated sommelier, let alone a team of sommeliers, as you often see in kind of, you know, at 11 Madison Park or whatever. And that for most people's dining experience, the their, their interaction with wine in a restaurant is still basically with the server or bartender.
0: I think you're right. I mean, the, the way that I think the sommelier has benefit in in the world of wine is that at these really top restaurants, it's a great way to, you know, feel comfortable and make sure that you're you're getting a great bottle. And then for the Somme, the way that I started to see it is it's one of the best ways, if you're really into wine, to learn a ton about wine. But you always sort of have to have in the back of your head, like what's the next move, even if you're not a celebrity. I mean, we know people who are you know, in the city who are advanced Psalms or even just like certified Psalms and they're thinking about like what's the next move because it's, it is, it's just a service position. I mean, the difference is it's front of house versus back of house. They make more money than the chef does, but the chef has the option to truly become the rock star. That's, that's I think the difference. Like there, there's a ceiling for front of house. Mm-hmm. they're actually as much as back of house is underpaid and you know, people like Danny Meyer are trying to fix that for, for the chef of back of house, there isn't a ceiling. Like if you can figure it out, if you can be that person who has that one hit and then parlays that multiple hits, you can make a ton of money. I and mean, look at David Chang. I mean, yeah. he's, he, he's doing everything now. Like, uh, and, and Jordan, who was his Psalm, she's starting a wine brand, mm-hmm. which is awesome. It's just not, the same level of opportunity as i think you have as, as a chef
1: yeah and that leads me into this sort of speculative question which you know is uh, again i don't know that that we can answer it but I, i've been thinking about this a lot as the potential for growth as a sommelier especially a floor sommelier or even someone in a single restaurant running a wine program is relatively maybe is relatively limited or at least there's a pretty hard ceiling to it i do wonder if if chasing you know advanced uh let's say, levels of um, achievement, whether it's, a, you know, the advanced sommelier um, or master SOM, given the amount that, you know, how much uh, how much more time-consuming, um, competitive, expensive, getting to that level has become over the last, say, decade, I wonder if there's going to be, in some ways, a, a slackening of demand for that, because, as there are more advanced and master psalms out there and as the sort of um, realization that, like, huh, you know, you reach that level and still, you know, maybe you're making pretty good money, but it's not, like, the kind of money you'd expect given what the seeming cultural status of that position is um, or that achievement is. Right. Then, you know, does it is it really worth the years of life and tens of thousands of dollars for, you know, essentially the same job as you had before, just with a new pin? Like, I, I really wonder if it's going to create... Um, if it's gonna, if there's gonna be some challenge in in sort of other than the people who want it for the sake of having it and maybe have the means to kind of pursue it regardless of whether it pays off in a financial sense, I wonder if we're gonna see some like, eh, you know, maybe I'm not gonna go that direction. I can create my own brand without that, um, without passing that test.
0: I think yeah, I think you're gonna see a little of both. I mean, I think you're you're gonna continue to have the people who just are competitive and want it. Right. I mean, even when I was chatting with Dustin, the reason he admits going for his masters was because Brian said he was, mm-hmm. and Dustin was like, well, I'm not going to let you get this and I'm not going <laughs> to get it. Right. But I mean, he originally got into wine and you hear this a lot to support some other lifestyle. Right. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to ski. Someone else just wanted to go live in California. Right. Like it's, they start out servicing them and they just get addicted and, and there is a competitiveness that I think exists among certain people who are interested in being sons. Um And that competitiveness comes along with this desire to then, you know, be certified, right? It's just, that, that certification is why we're also so obsessed with degrees in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Like everyone wants more and more and more degrees because they want to signal to the market that they have something that someone else doesn't have. So I think as long as that signal is still really powerful um, and, and people see that you can do other things with it, then it's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Continue to happen. I think, you know, as long as we have this reverence, as long as Psalm continues to be a popular movie,
2: yeah.
0: um, people are gonna are gonna chase for it. However, I also think the other a few other things are gonna continue to happen. Psalms are gonna continue to get younger and younger. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to become this pervasiveness among Psalms in which most of them are gonna be in their twenties. So that's what, what's really interesting to me about that is that right? Like, there's going to come a time when we're talking to sommeliers who, you know, are only a year or two into their legal drinking age, yeah. and they're creating wine lists for these top restaurants because I think as Somms get to my age, if they're early 30s, they're going to start saying, okay, I want to have a you know, I want to have a spouse. I maybe want to start a family. I maybe want to you know have better hours, and they're going to start making decisions that, you know, I think mean a lot of them are going to leave the floor. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Because again, you just can't have the quality of life and you can't have the payoff. So you're going to see a lot of the certification, I think, happen at a younger age than you even do now. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're we are going to be in restaurants where a majority of the Psalms are younger than us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's just going to be because, again, those are that's the age in which you can do these things. And then the only other thing I think that's going to maybe continue to grow the Psalm certification is and I know the you know the guild says that they don't want this to happen although we see it happening is you're going to see the certification start to happen from obsessives people who have no desire to ever work as psalms right it's going to be someone who is a collector who made a ton of money at their hedge fund and says you know i've got two years to do this and i want to say that i'm a master sommelier and so i'm going to go through all these levels to do it and i and i do think ultimately that's going to diminish the certification and i hope that doesn't happen because i you know a third of that certification really is about service. So I think that's really important to, you know, what it means to be a psalm is that you have worked the floor and you understand what that's all about. But, you know, there really doesn't seem to be a lot of other ways in our in our current wine culture to prove to people that you're an expert. So I think you're just going to see these big collectors saying, yep, I'm getting certified. I mean, I, I see it now. I mean, I know a lot of people who, you know, are, have certification in, as either a, you know, advanced or just certified psalm. Who have never worked before a day in their life and are are using it in order to sort of say among their friends, "Oh, I know more about wine than you do." <laughs> yeah,
1: <sighs> it's unfortunate, but I I definitely agree. I mean, I see it in I see it in my in my circles here in, in Seattle. Some there are definitely people who who have achieved that level with, let's say, maybe not no restaurant experience, but only enough to get them through the test. Um, you know, they go work in a yep. restaurant. Just long enough to kind of get proficient at service um, for the purposes of passing an exam and then it's, you know, on to whatever else they really want to do or, you know, not working at all or who knows what. I also think, you know, the other the other part of this that, uh, and it's maybe a conversation for another day, but, you know, there's also this real, I think this real question, uh, and especially as it comes to the quartermaster sommeliers and these exams is sort of, are they unfairly or at least um, inadvertently skewed in favor of people who actively or who do not ha- actually work in restaurants because you know if you work as a as a som or whatever in a restaurant you know you're working 50 60 hours a week often you know you're you're busy you're you know you don't necessarily have 20, 30 hours a week to dedicate to studying, to dedicate to tasting. You also probably don't have a ton of extra money lying around. I mean, I can tell you that working in restaurants is not a very lucrative job. Um, and and while you have some uh, advantages, i.e., you know, if you're in the right position, you maybe get to taste a lot of stuff in the context of your job. You get a lot of practice at service, obviously. You know, the flip side is, you know, I definitely know people who were because of other circumstances that had nothing to do with their job in a restaurant or whatever were able to take three six months off of working essentially or working very little to focus on passing a test. And again, you know that the the sommelier community and especially the higher levels have already, I think, a diversity issue. And some of it's unavoidable. Some of it's been you know just the nature of this country and the industry as a whole. But but it's not helped by making it by by gearing the exam and 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 sort of setting the exam up in such a way that the people who have the means and the ability to focus solely on that exam for a long period of time stand a much better chance of passing it um than people who have to fit in studying um around actually uh, making a living
0: i completely agree i mean i think that's been proven in the in as we've seen like these groups of people who are, who are taking the test who just simply have the ability to take it and i I think, you know, the the access to wine is a really important point that I don't think a lot of people recognize. Like the test runs the gamut of the things you're going to be presented with, especially in the blind tasting. I mean, uh, you know, Dustin said when we met, that's the hardest, That was the hardest part of the test for him. Took him three times to pass it when he was taking the advance, took him two times to pass it when he was taking the master. And a lot of the difficulty in the blind tasting portion of the exam is access to wine, mm-hmm. and yeah, sure you have access to wine as a as a som, but I mean, not the kind that you do if you just have a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> you know you. And depending on what restaurant you're working on, you might never – working at you might never get to open some of the stuff that you need to try to taste, but you have no clue if it's going to be put in front of you in the test. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it is a really interesting question for the Guild. Um, you know, how, how are they going to sort of address some of the challenges while, you know, continuing to keep certification, you know, front and center? And, you know, the other biggest question I think the Guild is going to face is – as we continue, I'm, I'm, this is all my brain because I'm working on the, another profile. So, part of like what we've been doing at VinePair is, uh, you know, I I want to get back to doing, you know, two bigger pieces a month for the site. Um, so, you know, Dustin was sort of my first one back, but one of the other people I'm talking to right now is Patrick Capiello. and Patrick is not certified. Patrick has never been certified, you know, and Patrick has a super successful career, mm-hmm. um, and you know, has been a brand ambassador and whatever and so I think also as 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 people in the restaurant world see people like Patrick and say, oh, he didn't get certified. And look what he's done. I mean, he was the spokesman for Bordeaux Wines for the last two years. And he, you know, is always in Aspen running tasting panels during the Food and Wine Festival. And, you know, he owns these, he owns, now he's opening a restaurant in Philadelphia and he has restaurants in New York. Like, maybe I don't need certification. I think that's going to be a, a big issue they're going to deal with because it's just so expensive to get certified
1: mm-hmm. yeah and it's and it is like a you end up with this real possible trade-off and especially as, as you reach the higher levels where the the pass-fail rate is pretty intimidating. You know, it would be one thing if you could sort of say, okay, I'm going to dedicate this amount of... I mean, just taking the test itself is expensive. You most For most people, it involves travel because, you know, they there's only one exam or two exams or maybe three at the advanced level a year. They're held at different places in the country. So you're traveling for a period of time. You're staying in a hotel. You know, there's all that cost, the, the cost of not working, plus obviously all the preparation costs. And if, you've, if the pass rate was... Higher, maybe you could say, okay, it's worth the ten thousand dollars it's going to cost me or whatever to pass this because I can expect this, um, you know, return on investment theoretically. But but when you're staring at even for very talented, gifted people like Dustin, who took several, you know, three turns to get through, advanced and two to get through the master level, you know, that's that's I mean I don't know that's daunting for me. I'll put it that way. Um, it's yeah. one of the one of the it things is. that's holding me back, and you know, there's others too, and and it's it is. You know, it, it just creates this sort of, I don't know. It, it just it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. I don't have a I don't have a conclusion. I guess is the the answer because we're gonna have to see what happens. But I'm curious to see if if more people like, you know, look at someone like Patrick, like you said, and say, hey, maybe I don't need to do this. Maybe there's other ways to get to a level of um, success and achievement in the industry that don't involve formal certification. Because in the end, the job is still really about what you know and what you can do and Proving that formally is nice, but I don't know that it's necessarily um, essential.
0: Yeah, I mean, as we were just talking, I was thinking about sort of like how would I describe what I think the sommelier certification shows, and, you know, is there other ways to do that? And I think the, the, what it shows is that you're someone that has an ability to hustle, right, and work very hard. And the diff, like the trade off here is that there are a lot of other ways to do that. You just have to be willing to to do the things it takes to prove that you are someone that is a hard worker and that is willing to, you know, promote yourself and promote the list. And, you know, when you think about like the most successful person in the last probably 15, 20 years in wine retail, if that name isn't Gary Vaynerchuk, then you don't know what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. regardless of what you think of him, right, or how you feel he's, you know, super in your face with his personality dude parlayed a career in wine into owning one of the largest advertising agencies in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at certain winemakers who are the same, right? Like Randall Graham, who's super successful, but he's a, he's a major hustler for someone, for someone who seems understated. He's really not, you know, he works really hard at putting himself out there. Both guys, no certification,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? Never, <laughs> probably nowhere close, but they're just hard workers. And I think, you know, that's, that's, what you're going to have to see is if, if you choose to go Patrick's route, you're going to say, "Okay, I'm going to have to work harder because you're going to have to see that I that I work hard," as opposed to I have this pin that shows you I did the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's two choices, but at the end, it has to the, the result has to be the same. You just have to prove that you're someone that can do it um, and that will work hard in order to do it time after time in order to be successful in this industry.
1: Excellent. Well, I think that's as good a place to leave it as any. Um... Adam, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It was a really uh, interesting conversation. And uh, we'll have to touch in again uh, on some of the other uh, longer pieces you're working on.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. This was awesome. I'd I I'd come back anytime.
1: Thanks again to Adam Teeter for joining me on Disgorged. You can find his work at vinepair.com or follow him on Twitter at Adam Teeter. I'm on there and Instagram at ZJabal or check out disgorgedwine.com for more. Thanks so much for listening to Disgorged and cheers.